0: So we continue in our series this week, The Gospel According to Leviticus. So we can have God's Word open us up to Leviticus chapter 4. We'll be reading from verse 1 through 12. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. And after that section, we will jump just to look at one verse in chapter 9, verse 22. So Leviticus chapter 4 verse 1 through 12, and then we'll look at chapter 9, verse 22. And when you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's Word. Leviticus chapter 4, beginning on verse 1. Now this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done and does any of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord, for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull in. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting, before the Lord, and lay his hand on the head of the bull. And kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood, on the ash heap it shall be burnt up chapter 9 verse 22 then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God
1: Uh, Despite all of its legalities and difficulties, Leviticus is actually communicating a very simple message. Its premise is that God desires fellowship with us, and so this entire book is about how we can draw near God, near to God in worship. Now, clearly, uh, we don't follow the practices uh, found in this book. We don't offer up sacrifices. We don't burn incense. We don't have priests in our place, all because of the simple fact that Jesus' work on the cross satisfied all of these requirements. Now, having said that, uh, just because we don't worship according to Leviticus doesn't mean that we can just brush it off to the side and not take it seriously. If you recall what Jesus said in Matthew 5, he says this, I have come, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus took Leviticus seriously. It was in many ways his mission statement. Jesus read and studied Leviticus carefully because his mission in life and in death was to fulfill all of it. And so, with this series, what I am proposing is that if we begin at the cross, and then we read backwards to Leviticus, and then we read forward back to the cross, we will uncover new layers and new depths of the gospel that will only result in deeper worship. You know, I was thinking about some comparisons, and I thought about fried chicken, right? What a transition, right? I thought about fried chicken. You know, fried chicken is great. I think a few of our members told me personally that fried chicken would be their last meal, Fried chicken is great, but do you know what makes fried chicken better? You put it back in the fryer. <laughs> That's right. When you double fry chicken, it gets better. The skin becomes tighter. For some reason, the, juice is meat, uh, the, the meat is juicier. Um, and even though it's fried twice, it just tastes cleaner and lighter. And it just holds together better. You see, the New Testament gospel just by itself is great. But once you taste the gospel with the Old Testament, friends, there is no going back. You see, when you start with the cross, and then you read backwards to the Old Testament, and then you let that propel you forward again like a slingshot to the cross, that is like, that's like double fried chicken. You, you, you get it twice. You start with the cross, you go back to the Old Testament, you understand it, and then you go forward again that, that is just an explosion. So, here's the encouragement. Um, maybe you, you're not interested at all. Maybe you're not excited at all. And maybe you're asking, why? Why are we studying this book? Well, the encouragement is this. When you start to see that these seemingly arbitrary stories and these rituals in the, New, in the Old Testament when you start to see that they were actually in the forefront of Jesus' mind, and every word he uttered and every action he performed was because of the Old Testament, once you start to see that the Old Testament is Jesus' mission, then you realize that this is a part of your story. You start to realize that these arbitrary or seemingly arbitrary rituals They are part of your salvation story. And so, with that encouragement, let's jump right into Leviticus. Leviticus, this book opens up with instructions on five different types of offerings. You have the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offering. Now today, we're going to look at sin offering, because according to Leviticus 9.22, Sin offering comes first in the order of worship. It all begins with sin offering. And so, here are the procedures for sin offering. When someone sins, he or she must bring an animal without blemish, a clean animal, and that animal can range from a bull to a lamb, depending on who you are and how grave the sin was. And the person brings this animal to the tabernacle, Now, I have a drawing of the tabernacle here, and towards uh, your right is the entrance. The person would bring this animal, and the priest would inspect it to make sure it's clean. And once the priest has inspected the animal, the person would place his hand on the animal's head. Now, this isn't just a light touch. It isn't a gentle pat on the head. The person isn't patting the bull. It's actually a heavy leaning into. The worshiper applies extreme pressure on the head of the animal. Now, I don't think we understand how difficult this is. When you apply pressure to an animal standing on all fours, the animal just isn't going to stand still. The animal will resist. It will fight back. It's like giving a toddler a haircut. Have you ever tried giving a two-year-old a haircut? Constantly it's, you know, don't touch my head, don't touch my head. Or you, you give a large dog a bath. There is a lot of resistance. Now, the reason why the worshiper does this, the reason why the worshiper leans heavy into the animal is because this act is symbolic of something called vicarious substitution. Now, vicarious substitution is just a fancy word for saying that the animal is now taking the place of the worshiper. See, because of the person's sin, he or she is unable to enter into God's presence. And so, what the person is saying is this, I will enter through the blood of this animal. I will approach God through this blameless sacrifice. That's why the worshiper applies all the pressure he could. Because in a sense, he's saying, this animal is now me. Friends, you know, this is what we do right before worship. uh, This is what we do during the call to worship. In a sense, what we are doing is, before we approach God, we are placing our hand on Jesus with all the pressure that we can muster up. We are leaning all of our strength on Him. Before we approach God, what we do is we say, God, I am not worthy to enter into your presence, but through Jesus, I can and I will. This is how worship begins, So please be on time. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon says this as he talks about this this leaning into, he says this, My soul recalls her day of deliverance with delight. Laden with guilt and full of fears, I saw my Savior willing to be my substitute. And I laid my hand, oh how timidly at first, but courage grew and confidence was confirmed. Confirmed. I leaned my soul entirely upon him, and now it is my unceasing joy to know that my sins are no longer imputed to me, but laid on him. So this worship begins with the person leaning his hand upon the animal's head, and as the person is pressing down as hard as he can, the priest then comes and kills the animal by slitting its throat. Now, I've never killed an animal before, but from what I've read, slitting the throat is actually one of the quickest ways of killing the animal. But even so, once you do that, depending on how large the animal is, it doesn't die immediately. The animal bleats, it bellows, it screams, it fights back. And I assume that they had to tie the animal down for this, especially if it's a large, young, healthy bull. You can imagine a bull just fighting back with all of its might until it loses enough blood and dies. You know, even when the bull dies, you know, because of muscle contraction, the animal is still shaking violently. Now, just picture this and contrast this with Jesus, what you have in Jesus When Isaiah describes Jesus' death, his slaughter, this is what Isaiah says. He says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, did you ever wonder why when Jesus went to the cross, why when he was being trialed, why Jesus did not fight back? You ever wonder why Jesus just stayed silent? silent and he remained passive well Jesus knew that to fulfill this leviticus he couldn't go kicking and screaming like all the sacrifices before him this is why Jesus is silent as people mock him jeer him flog him spit on him when people hurl accusations at him Jesus did not respond back saying no that is not true but he remained silent And Jesus remained silent because he had to be the ultimate and perfect sacrifice. Now, after the animal dies, the priest has to drain all of its blood. So you can imagine having witnessed this horrific scene with blood splattered everywhere. You, the worshiper, just standing there waiting for every ounce of blood to leave the animal's body drop by drop by drop. In a bowl there, there's about 20 liters of blood, and you're waiting for all the blood to just drain out. You know, this is the reason why Jesus hung on the cross for such a long time, for all afternoon, for about six hours, with blood flowing from his body. And do you remember in that last moment a soldier comes with a spear and pierces Jesus' side, and you remember what happens? Blood and water just flows from him. Every ounce of blood in Jesus' body was drained, just like the sin sacrifice. When we go back to Leviticus, we see that after the blood is drained, the priest then takes some of the blood, and he enters into the tabernacle. Once again, if you see here, I'm sure if this is going to work, but yeah, if you see here, you start here, they kill, the, they kill the animal here, and then the priest takes some of the blood and enters into this, this line here. And that line is actually uh, a curtain that looks somewhat like this. Uh, it was a veil uh, that separated the most holy place, and the priest would then enter in, and he would sprinkle blood seven times. Now, this veil uh, was made of costly tapestry, blue and purple yarn, a fine twined linen. This is more costly than any oriental rug you might have in your house. It's expensive. Imagine the many days and weeks it took for the people to, to make this. The people are in the desert, but they get this costly yarn, and they make this beautiful, beautiful curtain in the tabernacle. Now imagine this beautiful curtain as people are offering sacrifices, sin sacrifices every single day, and the priests are repeatedly sprinkling blood upon this curtain. And at some point this curtain probably looked like the entire thing was dipped in blood. The priests would sprinkle blood over and over and over on the curtain. Now, why are they doing this? Well, because behind the curtain was a place called the Holy of Holies. This was the very place where God Himself dwelt. And when the priest sprinkled blood on the curtain, it was an act of the worshiper himself. It was an act of the worshiper herself entering into God's presence through the blood. By sprinkling blood on the curtain, the worshiper was entering into God's presence. See, this is the reason why when Jesus was crucified, after yelling, it is finished, this same curtain in the temple was torn in two. It was God's way of showing that through Jesus' blood, we can enter into His presence. Next, uh, the priest would go to the altar of incense. It looked something like this. It had four, four horns on it. And the priest would once again take the blood and smear it on the horns. The altar of incense represented prayer. And as smoke and fragrance rises, so also the worshiper's prayer would rise. But once again, how would our prayers rise it was through the blood of this spotless sacrifice. The blood guaranteed that the worshippers' prayers, her deepest needs, things that couldn't be expressed, things that were unknown to the public, these prayers were going up to God and being heard. Friends, this is the reason why we are taught to pray in Jesus' name. When we come before God in prayer, not with our own name, not with our own merit, not with our own trophies, but when we come with the cleansing blood of Jesus that's smeared on our hearts and on our consciences, it guarantees that our prayers will rise like sweet fragrance into the nostrils of God. You know, personally for me, understanding this was a real breakthrough moment spiritually. For those of you who know me, I am a skeptic at heart, and I'm not just skeptical of other people, but I am often skeptical of myself. I often second-guess myself. I constantly question my motives. Even when I desire something noble and good, I struggle to even pray for it, And ask others to pray for it. Because I'm always afraid of having ulterior motives. I'm deeply afraid of having different motives. So I often find myself, um, rather than just praying, I spend more time thinking through prayers. I spend more time wondering, am I praying for the right thing? But this, blood on the altar of incense changed my perspective. I realized that my conscience could never be purified. I realized that my motives can never be pure. I realized that my own thoughts and my own spiritual disciplines could never purify my prayers. It's only by the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that perfects my prayers." And so even if I offer up selfish prayers, even if my heart is not in the right place and I might have ulterior motives, I might have hidden agendas, and even if I'm lying to God, I can still pray with confidence because the blood of Jesus will purify it. That's just not with my prayers. But once I started to realize this, you know, I started to change even how I prayed for other people. You know, I don't have to filter people's prayer requests anymore. I don't have to try to discern the person's motives when they ask me to pray for them. I don't have to ask questions like, why? Why are you asking for that? I don't have to ask leading questions. If a 16-year-old teenager asks me to pray so that she would get a boyfriend, I'll do it. Whatever they ask, I realized I just need to bring to the Lord because the blood of Jesus will purify it. The blood of Jesus will turn the dung of our prayers into sweet kingdom prayers. It's blood that purifies it. Finally, after having done all of this in their tabernacle, the priest then goes back outside And he pours the remainder of the blood at the base of the altar. This is just gallons and gallons of blood he just pours into the ground. And then he skins the animal, and like a butcher, he removes all the fat. He takes the kidneys out, the liver, and he burns it at the altar of burnt offering. Imagine being the worshiper, and you have a pool of blood in front of you. The fat of the animal is in a blaze. Friends, this isn't the smell of sweet barbecue or fogo de chow. It's the reeking smell of blood, guts, and fat. But it doesn't end there, because then the priest has to pick up the rest of the animal. He picks up the remains, the skin, all the flesh, with its head, its legs, all of its intestines, including its dung. And the priest has to carry this outside along with wood for fire. He carries it outside the tabernacle, past all the tents where the people were living, and he carries all of this heavy animal outside the camp. The priest then has to find an ash heap. He has to find a waste pile. And the priest would then proceed to put everything on it and burn it and watch it go up in flames. You see, the reason why they did this was because while the blood of the spotless animal was used to cleanse the worshiper, it was the sins of the worshiper that were transferred to the animal's remains. This is why the animal had to be taken outside the camp to be disposed of. Sin had absolutely no place in God's dwelling, it had to be removed. And so, if you follow along, if you go back to the gospel story, you'll see this is the reason why when Jesus carried His wooden cross, bearing the sins of the world, He was led all around the city of Jerusalem, and then He was led outside. He was led outside its walls, and there on a hill called the Place of Skull, He was crucified on a wooden cross." See, friends, there's nothing redeeming about Calvary. Calvary wasn't this beautiful green hill like something we see in the movie The Sound of Music. Calvary was actually a waste pile. And our Lord was crucified on a landfill. This completed the sin offering. This finished the first type of offering. It's one down and four more to go. This is how worship began, with the worshiper bringing a sin offering so that he could be cleansed, so that his heart and his conscience could be smeared with the blood of this perfect animal, and through the blood he can gain entry and access to God. Now, what does all this mean for us? Well, There's two things that I want to focus our attention on. The first is the ugliness of sin, and the second is the hopefulness of forgiveness. Some of you might find all of this animal sacrifice and this blood smearing to be repulsive and grotesque. But there are two things in response to that. First, we kill and slaughter more animals today for food than the Israelites ever did for sacrifice. And so we are in no position to be in any moral high horse saying, how could you do such a thing? But the second, and more importantly, is this. The reason why the sacrificial system was so graphic and galling was because this was supposed to reflect the ugliness and the abhorrent nature of sin itself. When the worshiper went to worship, He or she wasn't disgusted and grossed out by the sight and smell of blood, guts, and fire. No, instead, he looked inward, and he was disgusted, and he was filled with remorse at his own sin and how that prevented him from approaching God. You know, I've heard Christians say, if I had to worship in this way. If I had to worship in this way by bringing an animal, by watching it die, by watching the blood drain, if I had to see all of this, I would take sin more seriously. If it was costly for me, if it was time-consuming, if it was graphic, I would definitely not be sinning as much. But because I have Jesus... I sin so freely. You know, Christians who say this need to go to Calvary once again. Friends, if you feel this in your heart, that if I actually had to offer up an animal from the herd or the flock, and I had to picture this and see blood splattered all over me, if I had to wait hours in line and see drip, by drip of blood coming from an animal, for me to finally take my sin seriously. If that is how you feel, you need to stand at the foot of the cross and once again see your Savior bleed for you again. You see, we have two systems right now. We have sacrifice according to Leviticus, and we have sacrifice, the sacrifice of God's eternal beloved Son, which system requires us to take sin more seriously? I mean, this is just a, a simple analogy, but let's say you were in trouble. You were in debt, you felt guilty, or you, you had committed some grave sin, and you were held liable. And let's say I came to you and I said, listen, I'll give you my vehicle, take my car, use it, sell it, do whatever you need, take my car and solve your issue. Yeah, you would thank me. You would thank me every day for about a month, and then after a month, you would thank me maybe once a week. And then after the holiday passes, then I wouldn't hear from you about a month, and the next text message I get was, wow, the holidays were really busy. Sorry, thank you so much. But what if the only way out was for me to actually offer you my son? Would you say, you know what, you have three, I can just take one, thank you. You would not say that. You would say, I'm not worthy, I cannot take your son. Even a part of your son, I can't take this. But what if you had to? What if that was the only way? And what if I actually did give you my son? Would you take your guilt and your sin more seriously than if I were to give you my vehicle? You know, interestingly, one of the things that was forbidden in the Old Testament was child child sacrifice. God forbid child sacrifice. You know, you, you can imagine people having offered at the altar over and over again. They offer a bull, a goat, a lamb. They offer things over and over again, and as they feel the gravity of their sin, yes, the people probably thought, you know what, I need to offer up my child because this isn't enough. You know, the people all around them, all the nations around them, they offered up children because it was the most valuable asset. It was the most valuable thing for the people to attain forgiveness. But God said, you shall never offer up a child because it was going to be God himself who would offer up his own son for the sins of this world. You know, Christians ought to take sin more seriously. I think we take sin too casually. The sins of the leaders in the church are overlooked when the church is doing well. The sins of government officials are overlooked because the economy is doing well. The sins of our loved ones and our relatives are overlooked because we just want to hold the family together. Sin is overlooked for every excuse, every reason we can find. We are so casual about sin. And once again, I invite you, go to Calvary. Go to Calvary once again. That's the ugliness of sin that Leviticus tells us about. But it also tells us about the hopefulness of forgiveness. Now, despite what you might think of these practices, you might think, wow, this is so tedious, Uh, this is so distant, I mean, does this even make sense? You know, it was still very hopeful. You know, think about it, right? If you're the worshiper, you never get to go inside. You don't step foot inside the tabernacle. And even though it was the blood of an animal that was sprinkled on the curtains, and that was sort of your access, you couldn't even see this. You couldn't even go near this. But you know what? That was enough. Because that meant your guilt was no more. That was still hopeful for the people worshiping at this time. Their conscience was cleansed, their guilt was removed, and the worshiper was filled with joy and awe. There was hope in this system of forgiveness. But friends, what we have is not just a system of forgiveness where we are forgiven at a distance. We are forgiven at the foot of the cross directly. This is what Hebrews 10 says, as the author is actually basically summarizing the entire book of Leviticus. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, not outside, but inside the holy place, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, hear this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. When we come to Leviticus, we see not just the ugliness of our sins and what it causes, but we see hope in forgiveness, that by the shedding of blood of His precious Son, we have a new and living way opened up for us, that you and I, despite whatever sin you might be in, we can approach God, we can be in His presence, that our hearts and our minds are cleansed now because Jesus' blood satisfies all of it. Would you once again place your hope and your trust in this this morning? Join me in prayer at this time.